0: Genesis chapter number 14, i like to begin reading in verse number 8 of this chapter. The Word of God says, And there went out the king of Sodom, and the king of Gomorrah, and the king of Admah and the king of Zeboam, and the king of Bela, the same as Zoar. And they joined battle with them in the vale of Siddim with ketel the king of Elam, and with Tidal, king of nations, and with Amraphel, king of Shinar, and Ariok, king of Elisar, four kings with five. And the vale of Siddim was full of slime pits. And the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fell, fled and fell there. And they that remained fled to the mountain. And they took all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their victuals and went their way. And they took Lot, Abram's brother's son, who dwelt in Sodom and his goods and departed. And there came one that had escaped and told Abram the Hebrew, for he dwelt in the plain of Mamre, the Amorite, the brother uh, brother of Eshcol and brother of Aner. And these were confederate with Abram. And when Abram heard that his brother was taken captive, he armed his trained servants, born in his own house, 318, and pursued them unto Dan. He divided himself against them, he and his servants, by night, and smote them, and pursued them unto Hobah, which is on the left hand of Damascus. And he brought back all the goods, and also brought again his brother Lot, and his goods, and the women also, and the people." And the king of Sodom went out to meet him after his return from the slaughter of Ketel-Omer and of the kings that were with him at the valley of Sheba, which is the king's dale. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought forth bread and wine. He was the priest of the Most High God. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram of the Most High God, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be the Most High God, which hath delivered thine enemies into thy hand. And he gave him tithes of all. And the king of Sodom said unto Abram, Give me the persons, and take the goods to thyself. And Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted up mine hand unto the Lord, the Most High God, the Possessor of heaven and earth, that I will not take from a, a thread even to a shoe latchet, and that I will not take anything that is thine, lest thou shouldest say, I have made Abram rich." save only that which the young men have eaten, and the portion of the men which went with me, Aner, Eshcol, and Mamre. Let them take their portion. I want to look back at verse number 18. The Bible says, "...And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought forth bread and wine, and he was the priest of the Most High God." Let's pray. Father, I pray that You bless now the preaching of Your Word. Now, Lord, there's not a single person here by accident... Everyone under the sound of my voice is here by divine providence. I know, Lord, that this morning you have a truth for them. You have a thought for them, Lord. You have something in their heart and in their life that you seek to lay claim to. So I pray this morning, Father, that we might be surrendered unto you, that we might see your will accomplished in our hearts and lives. Lord, we love you this morning. We thank you for loving us. And we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. I want to take a few moments this morning and preach to you out of Genesis 14 on something quite unusual that occurred uh, long about verse number 18. We're introduced to a man by the name of Melchizedek. Now, there's lots of folks that like to argue about who Melchizedek is. Some people say that Melchizedek was a type, a a type of Christ. Some people say that Melchizedek uh, was a theophany or Christophany, meaning it was Christ himself. Uh, Some folks believe that it might have been a Shem. Some folks believe it might have been somebody else. Let me, let me just blow your mind. Are you ready this morning? Before we even, even preach on anything else, I'm going to tell you unequivocally, Undebatably, without any contradiction whatsoever, completely scripturally substantiated just exactly who Melchizedek is. Are you ready? Melchizedek, and we have scriptural authority on this, was the king of Salem, the priest of the Most High God. Amen? The truth is, your Bible does not tell you who exactly Melchizedek was. I have my opinion. You know, Lester Olaf always said that opinions are uh, the cheapest thing in the world because everyone's got one. But something we do know is uh, the scene surrounding this instance when Melchizedek comes out to meet Abram bringing bread and wine and blesses him and Abram pays tithes. Unto Melchizedek. Now, we do know that this is not allegory. We know that Melchizedek was a real, literal person. The book of Hebrews substantiates that. Uh, we understand he's not a spirit. He's not a ghost. Uh, he's not a metaphor. We understand he is real. But the thing that strikes my interest today, as we read this passage, is that this is the very first time in the Word of God that you'll find bread and wine spoken of in the same place. I don't know about you, but immediately when I hear the terms bread and wine, I'm reminded of something that uh, those that come back tonight will be partaking in this very evening. Uh, Some folks call it communion. Uh, Some folks call it memorial. Around here we call it the Lord's Supper. Uh, But the Bible teaches that there are two ordinances for the New Testament church. One of them is baptism. By the way, neither of these ordinances can save a man. Neither of these ordinances can make a man more saved or better saved or more securely saved but they are merely ordinances. They are pictures of something that has occurred in the past. One is baptism. Baptism is a picture of the fact that we have been buried with Christ We've been raised to walk in newness of life. The other is the Lord's Supper. Uh, The Lord instituted this ordinance on the night before He was crucified. And the Apostle Paul, uh, in writing to the church at Corinth, shares with us some of the details and uh, guidelines surrounding it. But basically, if you've never partook in it, this is what it is. Uh, You'll gather uh, unleavened bread together and grape juice. And by the way, we have scriptural evidence that it's grape juice and not fermented wine. Somebody say amen to that. And uh, the bread represents the broken body of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the grape juice in the Bible is called wine, represents the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And those that know the Lord Jesus Christ, number one, that's the first prerequisite. You've got to know the Lord Jesus Christ. And then those that believe themselves to be in harmony with the Lord for their life to be as it should be, that there's no unconfessed, unrepented of sin in their life, that they are to eat that bread and drink that grape juice in remembrance of the sacrifice that the Lord Jesus Christ made for them. But you know, long before Calvary, long before the cross, Long before the Apostle Paul in the New Testament, writing to the church at Corinth, long before the night before the Lord Jesus was crucified, we find Melchizedek bringing this same meal, this same table fare of bread and wine to Abram to celebrate the victory that had taken place. I want to take a few moments this morning and preach to you on what I believe we could call the First Lord's Supper. You know, I see a lot of things in this passage that remind me of the Lord's Supper. Let me say, and I'll give you three thoughts this morning. The first of which is this, that around this event, around this occasion in which Melchizedek comes and meets Abram bringing bread and wine, they are commemorating, they are remembering, they are recognizing that a great deliverance had taken place. You see, the thing that predicated all of this, the thing that set the stage, was a war of two confederates, two confederacies between uh, Kaleomer, who was the king of Elam and other kings, and the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah, and of Zoar and of, I believe, Bela. And uh, these two confederacies of armies had gone to war. Now, you say, well, preacher, what does that have to do with Abraham? Well, it doesn't have much to do with Abraham. In fact, there's really only one thing that made this any of Abram's business. And that was that Abram had a nephew by the name of Lot. Lot had come with Abram when he had gone into Canaan. And they had traveled together for a long time, but it got to a place God had prospered them and blessed them where uh, they, they had too many cattle and too many servants, and they couldn't dwell in the same place. And they realized they had come to a place where if they were going to keep peace, they had to part ways. And so Abram uh, looks at Lot and he says, Lot, I'll let you choose where you want to go. And in that moment, now how many of you know this, that life turns on hinges? Amen. Sometimes one decision we make can change the rest of our entire life. That's why, as God's people, we need to be praying and seeking the face and mind of God about the decisions we make. Because we can't look forward and see what may come out of it oftentimes. Well, Lot made a choice. He could have chose a good future for his kids, but the Bible says instead he chose a good future for his cattle. And he looked and he saw the well-watered plains of Jordan. And he chose instead of staying away from Sodom and Gomorrah, to dwell in that direction. The Bible says he pitched his tent towards Sodom. And it wasn't long before Lot was living in the city and sitting in the very gates of the city. Lot had made a decision that would crumble and destroy his entire life. But before that ever takes place, I'm talking about the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, before Genesis chapter 19... When Lot was still seemingly on good terms, when everything seemed to still be going well, before life had sort of caved in around him, the instance we have read took place. And I'd like for you to notice three thoughts relating to this deliverance that remind me of the thing we remember when we celebrate the Lord's Supper. When we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we are remembering the great deliverance of Calvary. We're remembering that Jesus Christ became flesh and died in your place and mine upon Calvary, paid our sin debt so that we might be delivered from the judgment and captivity that we found ourselves in. And I I see three things that sort of remind me of that. Let me say, number one, I want you to notice the confederacy that condemned him. Look at verses 8 and 9 again. The Bible says this, "...and there went out the king of Sodom, and the king of Gomorrah, and the king of Admah, and the king of Zeboam, and the king of Bela, and they joined battle with them in the vale of Siddim with Cedalomer, the king of Elam, and with Tidal, king of nations, and Amraphel, king of Shinar, and Ariok, king of Elisar, four kings with five. Now, what I want you to notice in that verse is not all the names that you do find, but I want you to notice a name that you don't find. You don't one time find in verses 8 and 9 the name of Lot. And yet we find out later in this chapter, just a few verses down, that Lot was there with them on that day. Now, Lot was an important person, at least by the time you come to Genesis 19, he was an important person in Sodom and Gomorrah. He, he sat in the gates of the city, the Bible says, there in Sodom. And what that means is literally he held somewhat of a public uh, capacity and, and office uh, that he might be a judge upon those uh, that lived in the city. But I would venture to say this, that probably when it came time to decide whether they were going to go to war or not, I'm betting that Lot was not consulted, not even once. You see, Lot had to go to war because the heads of his cities were going to war. Sort of reminds me of the condition that the sinner is in. Now, I'll go ahead and tell you that I recognize that it's not just that all are sinners and have come short of the glory of God, but all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Amen? We're not just sinners by nature, we're also sinners by practice. But it reminds me, listen now, we're not sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. That's who and what we are by nature. Why are we that by nature? Well, I would suggest to you this, that you and I are condemned as sinners by our confederacy with Adam. You see, we may have not sinned the way Adam sinned, but that don't matter. As Adam is the head of the human race, the federal head of the human race, when he sinned, we sinned. When he fell, we fell. When he went astray, we went astray. And just as Lot was condemned because these kings went to battle, we also were condemned because Adam ate of the fruit. Listen to what it says in Romans five, twelve through 14. The Bible says, Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world. Now, who is that one man? We know that's Adam, of course. And death by sin. And so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, meaning from the beginning of, uh, of time when Adam fell until the law was given on Sinai. Death still reigned. Why? Even over them who had not sinned after the similitude of Adam's transgression, who is the figure of him that was to come. Why did that happen? Because Adam is the federal head of the human race. In other words, it don't matter whether you're a good person. It doesn't matter whether, in, to your recollection, you've never done anything wrong in life. The very fact that you draw a breath is a good indicator that you were born a sinner. Amen? Every single one of us are born sinners in this world. There's not a single one of us. I know, I, one of the things I love around here is all the babies we have around here, just all of a sudden. I, the, I'm thinking about renting them out on, on uh, weekdays to people, to old women. Amen? Amen? Some, yeah, this barker said, hey, sign me up. amen." I love all the babies around. You know, it's hard when you look at that little infant to think that that infant could be a sinner. And while I recognize that little child does not have the mental capacity to understand right and wrong, I do understand that if the course of time continues, there will come a time when that child does recognize right and wrong. And guess what that child's going to do? They're going to, at least some of the time, choose to do wrong. It's our nature. It's who we are. It's what we are. We are sinners by our very nature. I see a reminder of the sinner when I look at the confederacy that condemned him. Let me give you a second truth this morning. Look at verses 10 through 12. The Bible says this, "...and the vale of Siddam was full of slime pits. And the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled and fell there. And they that remained fled to the mountain." By the way, isn't it interesting... Isn't it interesting that when the kings fled, they instinctively fled to the slime pit? Now, isn't that a picture of the human heart and human nature? When they had a direction to run, when they could have turned and ran, when they could have escaped, they went straight to the slime pit. You know, the New Testament talks about that when it talks about a swine, a pig, returning to its wallowing. And you know, that's human heart, that's human nature. That's part of. We just rolled over the new year. I don't know if you're aware of that. If you ain't aware of that, you've got bigger problems than I can fix this morning, but... We just rolled over to a new year. Every, every new year, there's new resolutions. Isn't that interesting that nobody ever says, I don't need a new year's resolution, I'm still keeping last year's. Isn't that strange? We always need a new resolution. Why? Because it's human nature to always go back to what's wrong. That's human nature. When they had the chance to run, where did they run? They ran to the slime pits. Notice carefully what your Bible says. It says, And they that remained fled to the mountain. Verse 11, And they took all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their victuals and went their way. And they took Lot, Abram's brother's son, who dwelt in Sodom and his goods, and departed. I think it's a picture of the sinner, not only in the confederacy that condemned him, but it reminds me of the sinner when I look at the captivity that bound him. You see, he was condemned because of who he was and who he ran with. But he was captive. Because he made a run for the slime pits and fell there. And it reminds me of this truth. That the lost sinner, though moral he may be by society's standards, at the end of the day, he is a servant and slave to sin and unrighteousness. He is a servant and slave to sin and unrighteousness. How many of you know that this world is full of slime pits? Everywhere you look, man, there's quicksand. Everywhere you look, there's some place for you to put your foot that's going to suck you in. And ruin and wreck your life. Why is the world like that? Listen to me. The world's that way because it's full of sin and it's full of lost people. Now, that's not to say that Christians don't make mistakes. It's not to say that Christians don't do what's wrong. Uh, listen, there's been lots of folks, and by the way, if we're wanting to be just real strict here, I believe Lot was a righteous man. He vexed his righteous soul daily by hearing and, and, uh, and seeing their wicked deeds. So I, I don't doubt that. I'm not trying to make it seem like Christians are just the best thing walking around on earth. But I am saying this, that the lost man does what he does because he's lost, and that's his nature, and he is captive and bound to it. Even if a lost man wants to do better, he may do better by society's standards, but he cannot do better by God's standards. He is spiritually dead. The Bible says, "...even you hath he quickened who were dead." in trespasses and sins. I, I Just uh, the, this past uh, week, we, we had the funeral for Miss Debbie's mother. Of course, we're going to be doing a, uh, a little memorial for Kathy's mama and uh, Brother Paul Lester. Many of you knew Brother Paul. He just passed away uh, last night. They'll be no doubt doing a funeral for him. There's a, another fellow that uh, has shared with me. He said, Preacher, they, they've called in hospice. I'm I'm going to be dying soon. I've been to a lot of funerals. I've done a lot of funerals. Uh, if the Lord carries is coming and, and counts me faithful to be in the ministry and stay in the ministry, I'll probably do a. lot more. And uh, whenever you look, when you go to a funeral, I've seen uh, it's amazing. It really is how good the funeral workers are at dressing and beautifying the person that's in the casket. I, 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 I mean, it's amazing. You can see it looks like you're just waiting any moment for them to open their eyes. They look so beautiful. But despite all that they can do to beautify, they cannot do anything to make alive once again. They can make them appear alive. They can make them look say, they look so beautiful that you're just waiting for them to open their eyes. But at the end of the day, they won't. Because you know that though they may be able to change the outside, they cannot change the inside. You know, the same truth applies to this lost world. A lost person may be able to change the outside of their life. They may be able to try to look better and dress better and act better and do better. But you know what they wind up being when they do that? Christ described the Pharisees this way. He said, "Ye are whited sepulchers. On the outside, you are beautiful and garnished, but within are dead men's bones. At the end of the day, a lost man can't save himself, he can't change himself. He is bound in captivity to the sin that holds him. Preacher, what can be done about it? Well, I'm glad it does not end there. Wouldn't it be sad if it ended with Lot under chains and shackles by Catolea O'Meara, And the last bit of the story was simply that Lot walked off the page of Scripture in captivity to a pagan king. But the Bible does not say that. Oh, my, aren't you glad your story doesn't end that way? Aren't you glad? Let me just preach for a few moments to you this morning. Aren't you glad that's not how your story ended? Has it ever dawned on you that your story could have ended that way just as easily? Brother Charlie, it could have ended with you under the chains and shackles of a pagan king. It could have ended with you walking off the pages of people's memories and off into a devil's hell and eternity without Christ. It could have been just as easily have been you. But I'm glad for the grace of God because it reminds me of the sinner, not just with the confederacy that condemned him and the captivity that bound him, but I'm reminded of my story when I consider the conqueror that freed him. Bible says in verse number 13, I said there wasn't enough to preach it tonight. Maybe there's enough for me to preach it this morning and tonight and come back Wednesday we might finish. Look at verse 13. And there came one that had escaped and told Abram the Hebrew. Can I just pause there and say this? Glory to God for the day when somebody that had escaped, that knew the dangers, that knew the perils, came to the throne room of God on my behalf. And told the Lord. Now, the Lord already knew. Amen. Don't you think Abram probably already knew, too? That's big news around there. I mean, these battles raging. No doubt he understood that if Sodom was at the battle, then Lot was at the battle. But aren't you glad that someone came on your behalf? Someone came on my behalf and pled my name into the ears of a thrice holy God and said, Lord, save him by your grace. The Bible says that one that had escaped came. The Bible says, and told Abram the Hebrew, for he dwelt in the plain of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eshcol and brother of Aner. And these were confederate with Abram. There's probably a lot of imagery there that I was afraid if I studied it out, we might be here for three weeks. The Bible says in verse 14, and when Abram heard that his brother was taken captive. Oh, my, (laughs) I'm trying. Church, I really am trying. But aren't you glad that Christ was willing to be made flesh for you and I? The Bible says when he heard that his brother was taken captive. Now, how many of you know, and we've seen it just by reading our Bibles this morning, that Lot was not the brother of Abram, right? He was the nephew of Abram, but it didn't matter. You see, when he said brother here, he didn't mean brother by blood. He meant brother by love, brother by spirit, brother by desire. And what he's saying is this, hey, I'm going to go rescue him because I love him and care about him. Aren't you glad for the day that Jesus Christ robed Himself in flesh? The Bible says it became Him. Uh, and the Bible says it behooved Him to be made like unto His brethren. The Bible says that He robed Himself in human flesh and took upon Him the visage of man, the likeness of man, of sinful flesh for you and me. Oh, what a Savior we have. Amen? That He became flesh for you and I. That He went into the jaws of the beast and the heart of the battle and paid our sin debt that we might be redeemed. We find in this passage a great conqueror. Notice what it says. i got to read more. I'll find something else to preach. The Bible says, "...He armed His trained servants, born in His own house, 318, and pursued them unto Dan." You know, that's you and me, right? "...Were the armed servants, trained and raised in His house." We're those that have been born again who have been commissioned to go out and to share the conquering truth of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ with a lost and dying world and to pursue unto them. By the way, you know that name hoba uh, that denotes the idea of a shoulder. Sometimes when you witness, that's all you're going to get is the shoulder, amen? But you've got to pursue and pursue. I don't mean being obnoxious. I don't mean being ugly. I don't mean being argumented. But I mean in love and compassion, continuing to be there for those that need Christ, that they might hear the gospel Bible says in verse number 15, He divided Himself against them. Aren't you glad Jesus was willing? This way? I don't have any of this in my notes, but uh, listen. Aren't you glad He was willing to divide Himself for us? Preacher, what do you mean? Well, don't you remember? In all of the Lord's earthly ministry, He always called His Father, Father. Always, without fail, except one occasion. There was one time when in something of a mystery to me, I'll confess to you, something of a mysterious occurrence... Took place on Calvary's hill. The Bible says that the entire earth was dark, and when it was that Jesus cried out and he said, "This Eli, Eli, lama sabachtonite," which is to be, uh, which is to say, "My God, My God, why hast Thou forsaken me?" You see, that was God dividing Himself for you and I. That was God being willing. I don't understand all of it. Don't ask me if you come up to me, and say, preacher. Explain this, 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 and that. I'm just going to have to hand you a Bible because I can't, I can't understand all of it. But I understand that in some mysterious way. I, I'm not saying that all was broken in that moment, but I am understanding that all was not left whole. And I don't understand to the extent to which the division took place, and I can't explain everything. But I know that in that moment when he spoke to his father, he didn't say father. He said, you're my God and you've forsaken me. And Christ asked the question. It is for one inescapable reason. Christ only, listen, God only asks rhetorical questions. God never asks a question because he needs knowledge. God asks this question so that we might ask this question. So that we might say, why did he forsake him? Why did he forsake him? And as we study revealed Scripture, the only thing we can conclude is this. He forsook him for me. He forsook him so that he might say to me, let your conversation be without covetousness for as much as it is written, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. He took my place on the cross. And not only was that a place of death, but it was a place of forsakenness. And on the cross... He was forsaken that you and I might never be forsaken. Well, you see in this passage, he was divided. By the way, it's interesting that it happened at night, too. I'm not going to preach on it, but I, I kind of want to. The Bible says, And he divided himself against them, he and his servants, by night, and smote them and pursued them unto Hobah, which is on the left hand of Damascus. I see a picture, and if you don't see it clear enough yet, I don't know that any amount of preaching will, but I see a picture of the conqueror that freed him. And it reminds me, of what the Bible says in Galatians chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, when it says this, "...Grace be to you, and peace from God the Father and from our Lord Jesus Christ, who gave Himself for our sins, that He might deliver us from this present evil world, according to the will of God and our Father." You see, just as Abram went into the battle to free Lot, Christ was willing to take our place to face our sin debt, to be made our sin debt, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. I see a great deliverance as being the occasion. But then I want you to notice verses 18 through 20 and see with me that a great declaration was being made by this act that Melchizedek endeavored on. You see, there was something meant by the bringing of the bread and wine. It was not just a celebration. Of course, it was a celebration that God had brought Abram through the battle. But it was also important. It, it, it's not He could have brought anything. Amen. Amen? I remember hearing a preacher say one time, well, you can take the Lord's Supper with Doritos and Dr. Pepper. It don't matter. It's just a picture. I reject that. I reject that. I reject that. If God said it's to be unleavened bread, it's to be unleavened bread. And if Jesus took it with unfermented wine... I'll be taking it with unfermented wine. And I believe he did, because I don't believe he'd contradict himself in light of revealed Scripture. The Bible says, Wine is a mocker, strong drink is raging. Whosoever deceived thereby is not wise. That's just Bible. Amen? If you want my opinion, because you think it'll make you feel better, I'm sorry, all I've got to give you is Bible. We find (laughs) in this passage that they were celebrating something. It couldn't just be anything. It had to be bread and wine. And on this occasion, I believe that declares unto us a few different things. Look at verse number 18. The Bible says, Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought forth bread and wine, and he was the priest of the Most High God. Now, I think that's very instructive for two reasons. One, we notice what capacity he filled in the world that he lived in. He was the priest of the Most High God. You say, well, preacher, what do you think that means? I believe it means he was the priest of the Most High God. You say, but preacher, was he a Levite? Doesn't matter. The law hadn't been given yet. In fact, the book of Hebrews makes it clear uh, that the priesthood of Melchizedek is superlative to the priesthood of the Levites and of Aaron. You say, preacher, how do you know that? Well, Paul would explain it this way. He would say uh, that without exception, uh, the uh, greater is uh, blessed of the lesser. And he said that uh, Levi paid tithes unto Melchizedek when he was still yet in the loins of Abram. So I think when we read this, we can understand that's a literal priest. And what's he bringing? The Bible says he's bringing bread and wine. You know what I think the first thing they were recognizing was? Was that the sacrifice had been accepted. Now, I think whenever he comes to Abraham, I believe this. And you can disagree with me if you want. That's fine. One of these days when you get called to pastor church and start pastoring and gather a bunch of people and start preaching to them, you can preach it any way that you want to. But this is my opinion on the matter. I believe, as a priest, Melchizedek had probably been giving sacrifices that day. I believe he had probably, for the safety and safekeeping of Abram, he had probably been endeavoring on his priestly duties on that day and had been fixing sacrifices and presenting sacrifices to the Lord. And I think the fact that he brings this bread and wine is a reminder to Abram that the sacrifice that had been made upon his behalf had been accepted and that was something to celebrate. You know what the Lord's Supper reminds me of? It reminds me that the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ made on my behalf, made on your behalf, has been accepted in the presence of Almighty God. That's the reason that, uh, listen now, I'm going I'm to throw a $10 word. This might be a $12 word. That's the reason I reject the false doctrine of transubstantiation. You say, Preacher, what's transubstantiation? Well, other than the answer on Jeopardy, transubstantiation is the belief that the bread and the wine literally become, once they are ingested, the body of Christ and the blood of Christ. You say, Preacher, that's crazy! Who would believe that? The Roman Catholic Church. as just one of some, but I mean, there's others too, but they mainly, the Roman Catholic Church, that's, I don't know, like a billion people walking the planet, Brother Charlie. So I believe it's important that we understand this this morning. I reject the doctrine of transubstantiation for a lot of reasons. But the main reason is this. The sacrifice has already been given and it's already been accepted. There's no need. Listen to me. I I know there may be people who got a crucifix in your home. That's fine. I ain't fussing at you. You can have that if you want. But i got news for you. Jesus is no longer on the cross. When He said, it is finished, it was finished! And he doesn't have to give any more sacrifices for you and I. And the fact that we observe the Lord's Supper is just a reminder of the sacrifice that he gave and that that sacrifice has been accepted. Let me say number two, look at verse number 19. The Bible says, and he blessed him, meaning Melchizedek blessed Abraham and said, Blessed be Abram of the Most High God, possessor of heaven and earth. You know, the Lord's Supper declares not only that the sacrifice has been accepted, but it also declares, listen now, that the pilgrim, has been received. (laughs) You know what he was saying? He was saying, Abram, God's pleased with you. Abram, God is pleased with what you've done this day. God is pleased with your faith. God is pleased with your trust in Him. Blessed be thou, Abram, of the Most High God. As we already said, there's really only two prerequisites to taking the Lord's Supper. I know some folks would believe there's three or four or fifty. But there are only two scriptural prerequisites for taking the Lord's Supper. One is that we must be saved. He said, preacher, how do you know that? Well, because uh, Christ said, this do in remembrance of me. And if you've never partook in the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ by believing on Him, then there's nothing for you to remember. You have to be saved. But then the second thing is this. We need to be right with God. I didn't say perfect, and God didn't say perfect either. But we need to be right with God. But you know, it's interesting to me, for Charlie, when we've made this distinction before when we've done the Lord's Supper, you know, the Bible does not say that we are to take of the Lord's Supper in a worthy uh, condition. The Bible never says that. The Bible does not say we are to take it in being worthy. The Bible says we are to take it worthily. He say, preacher, what's the difference? Well, the difference is the difference between an adjective and an adverb. An adjective describes a, a, a noun, a person, place, or thing. And listen, if we had to be worthy in and of ourselves, we never would get to take the Lord's Supper. But an adverb describes the way in which we perform an action. And when the Bible says we are to take of it worthily, what it's saying, it's not saying, hey, you need to be worthy to take it. It's saying you've already been made worthy through the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, you need to observe it in a worthy manner. The fact is, when we take the Lord's Supper, it reminds us of this, that through the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ... We've been brought into the most sacred institution, which is the local church. We've been brought in to to the most holiest of places, which is the presence of Almighty God. It reminds us, not through any effort of our own, but through the finished work of Christ on Calvary, that as John said it best, we have been accepted in the Beloved. Now remember, it doesn't accomplish that, it merely acknowledges that. If you're not saved, then taking the Lord's Supper won't make you saved. It doesn't accomplish that. It just acknowledges that. But if you have been saved by God's grace, how more intimately could we know the Lord Jesus than to partake in His flesh and in His blood? I find it to be a picture of the pilgrim being received. Let me give you a third thing. It reminds me that the enemy has been vanquished. Look at verse number 20. The Bible says this, And blessed be the Most High God, which hath delivered thine enemies into thy hands. And he gave them tithes of all. (laughs) You know what the Lord's Supper reminds me of? It reminds me not only that the sacrifice of Christ has been accepted. It reminds me not only that this poor pilgrim that has no standing in and of himself in the presence of God has been accepted into the beloved, but it reminds me that my greatest enemy has been vanquished that Satan's days are numbered, that his great attempt at Calvary... You say, Preacher, it wasn't Satan at Calvary. No, listen, this is interesting. I want you to listen. Uh, It's true the Jews crucified Jesus. It's true the Romans crucified Jesus. It's true also that God crucified Jesus. It's also true that you and me, through our sin, have crucified Jesus. But did you know that Satan was shooting for that too? You say, how do you know? Because it was Satan that put into the heart of Judas to betray him. Satan thought that Calvary would be his greatest victory. How could he know that it would be the final nail in his coffin? And you and I are reminded when we partake of that bread and that grape juice that Satan doesn't get the last laugh. He doesn't have the final victory. Though he may win many battles between now and eternity, ultimately his fate is sealed. And the enemy has been vanquished. Let me give you one final thought and I'll be done with three sub points and six subpoints for each of those and an intermission. <laughs> Look at verse number 21. The Bible says this. The king of Sodom said unto Abram, give me the persons and take the goods to thyself. And Abram said to the king of Sodom, I lift up mine hand unto the Lord, the most high God, the possessor of heaven and earth, that I will not take from a thread even to a shoe latchet, and that I will not take anything that is thine, lest thou shouldst say I have made Abram rich. Now, let's put a little context. Is that okay? Context is king when you study your Bible. I'm not going to ask you to do it. But you know, you could turn two chapters back and you'd find a very different Abram. In chapter number 13, Abram goes down to Egypt. And when he goes down to Egypt, he asks Sarah, his wife, to lie and to tell him that she is his sister so that they won't kill Abram to take Sarah to be their wife. And then whenever God afflicts Pharaoh, uh, the the Bible says that Pharaoh gives all these riches and goods and increase in cattle and livestock unto Abram. And you know what Abram does? Now, this if it was Abram in chapter 15, he would have raised his hand. He would have said, I have raised my hand to the God of heaven, the possessor of heaven. Nope. He said, just tie it on to the rest of the cattle, and I'll take it with me when I go. But evidently, something changed between chapter 13 and chapter 15. Can I say that not only do we see in this passage great deliverance, which was the occasion of it, and a great declaration, which was presented by the giving of it, but I would like for you to notice that there's a great determination that results from this Lord's Supper experience. Abram is a changed man. And I want you to notice that there are three things about this change that are important. Notice, first off, that we see the proposal of the world. What does the king of Sodom desire from Abram? Now, if this had been Lot, he may have gotten it. But he asked Abram. And the Bible says this in verse number 21. The king of Sodom said unto Abram, Give me the persons and take the goods for thyself. You notice the trade that the king of Sodom wants to make. He says, I want the people... You take the products. You take the prosperity. You just give me the people. You know, that's still the offer that Satan is making today. <laughs> Listen, there's been lots of folks that Satan has made rich materially and has spiritually bankrupted. You know, that's the philosophy of the world. It's always interesting to me. You know, uh, the, the public school system, I'm not necessarily against or for or whatever. I mean, I think it does a lot of bad things. But I know some people have to be in it and everything, but I'm not going to fuss at you about it. But I, but I will say this. It's always fascinating to me that in a school system where children are no more than a number, that they spend thousands and thousands of dollars every year on guidance counselors to try to convince kids that they're precious and special and unique, and then they educate every single one of them in an identical manner to those that are around them and treat them like every other kid that's around them. Isn't that interesting that the world's philosophy is that all people are the same and are dispensable? Uh, that uh, all we're interested in is trying to uh, suck out of their life as much as we possibly can. And Christians have fallen prey to that philosophy. The devil, he's interested not in the stuff. He's got all the stuff he could want. He's interested in you. He wants to destroy your life. And that's the reason that oftentimes Satan uh, will trade people. He'll say, hey, and you know he tried to do this with Christ. He said, if you'll bow down before me, I'll give you all the kingdoms of the earth in but a moment of time. you know what the Lord said? He said, Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. The proposal of the world was, Abram, give me the people and you can have the stuff. But notice the principles of Abraham. How does he respond in verses 22 and 23? I love this, man. I think it'd be good. Listen carefully. I think it'd be good if all of God's people would somehow jot this down and stick it somewhere you'd see it every day of your life. Listen again to what he says. Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted up my hand unto the Lord, the Most High God, the possessor of heaven and earth. He's saying, I've made a pledge to somebody that already owns everything. I've made a commitment to somebody that already has a title deed to everything in this world. You know what he's saying? He's saying, there's nothing that you can give me that he can't give me. There's nothing you could offer me that he couldn't offer me. There's nothing that you could give to me but what the Lord can do better than you can do. He says that I will not take from a thread even to a shoe latch. Not from a thread to it. Could we say it this way? We, we, we ain't going to take pocket limp from the devil. We, we ain't going to take shoelaces from the devil. Amen? Uh, we ain't going to take praise from the devil. We ain't going to take position from the devil. We ain't going to take prosperity from the devil. He can keep it. We serve one greater than Him. <laughs> and He says this. He says that I will not take anything that is thine, lest thou shouldest say... I have made Abram rich. You know, the Lord's Supper, it reminds me of what a great high standard I as a child of God have been called to. It reminds me of the great price that was paid for me. You see, the fact is, there's a difference in the way that the devil values people and the way that God values people. It's similar. You notice the king of Sodom said, I'll give you anything if I can have the person. The only difference is this. Jesus did give everything so that He might save you, so that He might save me. When we take the Lord's Supper, it ought to remind us that we're holy people. It ought to remind us that a price was paid that we could never even fathom. It ought to remind us, as we as we hold that bread in our hand, as we hold that grape juice in our hand, it ought to remind us of the great steep price that was given for our redemption. For you to sit in this church pew, for me to stand here in front of you and preach. For us to have a Bible in our hands and the Spirit of God in our hearts. Oh, what a price was paid so that we might be redeemed. We find in this passage, not only the proposal of the world and the principles of Abram, but finally, I want you to notice the perspective of Abram. Look at verse 24. What does he want? He says, save only that which the young men have eaten and the portion of the men which went with me, Aner, Eshgal, and Mamre, let them Take their portion. I want to close with a simple thought. We find the devil saying, Give me the people, I'll give you the goods. But you know what Abram's saying? He's saying, Give me just what goods we need to live. But whatever you do, deliver the people. You know what taking the Lord's Supper ought to remind us of? It ought to remind us of a lot of things. But it ought to remind us of just how much God loves sinners. And it ought to remind us of just how much you and I should love sinners. It should remind us that as far as this world's goods are concerned, all we need, and by the way, conveniently, all that we're promised concerning this world's good is food and raiment. The Bible says therewith to be content. I'm not against people having money. I've got a little bit. I'd love to have more. Amen. I'm not against people having money. I'm not against you having money or me having money. But I realize that money is not what it's about. God, help us to get to the place where what we desire more than anything, more than a a better house or a better car or a better wardrobe or whatever it might be, is that we desire to see some of those that are under captivity to the king of Sodom, that are under captivity to the world system, that they might come to know Christ and be saved by His grace. It ought to adjust our focus onto what really matters. And what really matters is that we be the witness God would call us to be and that we see people come to know Christ. Listen, if you're here today and you say, Preacher, that's all good and everything, but I don't even know what you're talking about. I I, I came in here. I, I don't know if I'm saved. I don't know if I'm lost. Or you might say, I came in here. I know I'm lost. Can I tell you today that though right now the Lord's Supper may not mean anything to you, the Lord's death on Calvary was just for you, just as it was for me. That same bread, that same wine, the body, the blood of the Lord Jesus, it was broken for you. It was shed for you. Just as it was broken for me and shed for me. The Bible says He tasted death for every man. And you know what that does. The fact that He tasted death for every man means that every man has the opportunity to taste life if they'll come unto Him. You don't have to leave your lost. Jesus died for your sins. You don't have to leave here wondering. Jesus gave us His Word that we might have security. And if you'll come to Christ today, then just as He did for me, just as He did, if you're saved by God's grace, I don't want you to raise your hand, but just say amen right now, would you? If you say, He'll save you like He saved them. He'll save you like He saved them. And He'll deliver you from the bondage of this world and change your life for His glory. With our heads bowed, with our eyes closed,